0: Well, good morning again. For those of you I don't know, my name's Deirdre Chance. I'm associate minister and part of the ministry team here at Twin Cities Church, and part of my roles and responsibilities under the authority of the elders is to take on some of the preaching. So this morning, I get to be with you to look at Psalms 47, and I love this psalm. I mean, it's loud, and it's an exuberant, and it's a psalm of victory, and there's praising, and there's shouting, and there's clapping, and also it's a call. That first verse that um, Aaron read, it's a call to the people. It's a call to us to praise God. And I suppose we could say in a sense it's also an exhortation to praise God and a teaching to praise God. And I'd like to look at like what it's calling us to do, but before we do that, I'd like to look at what it's not calling us to do. So when we look at that psalm, We don't see a calling to praise God because of our emotions, because of our feelings. That's not what's driving the praise. I mean, the feelings and the emotions are definitely there, but that's not what's driving the praise. But there's still a connection to the emotional domain. I mean, on the other hand, it's not saying that our praise should just be stoic and absent of emotion. You know, that was the stoic philosophy that if you could get through life and never get too worked up over anything, then you had reached ideal maturity. So it's not saying any, you know, that's not what to drive us. It's, it's not saying that me as an individual, my individualistic concerns, that's what should be driving my praise. I mean, there's, there's the corporate communal identity there. There's definitely attachment to what we get. You know, we're beloved, we're the pride of Jacob, there's a chosen inheritance, but the the thrust and the core isn't just all about me and who I am as an individual. And attached to that, too, the praise isn't driven for a self-help. Um, that's not, again, the core or the thrust. You know, it's not like I'm going to praise God because he's a lucky rabbit foot, and then I'll get what I want, you know, or do it the other way. You know, I got the blessing, so now I'll praise God. Um, that's not what's driving this praise. And finally, this psalm, you know, it's not telling us this is the form. This is what you have to look like when you praise God. That's not the core or the thrust either of this praise. So if we jump into the text, what is driving the praise? You know, this psalm only has nine little verses, and almost every one is a verse that's praising God for being the victorious king. That's praising God as the all-powerful one. That's praising God to be feared. You know, we look at verse 2, the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over Verse 3, he subdued peoples and then it kind of expands even nations under our feet. God has gone out with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. You know, there's a huge victory and confidence in his victory. God is the king of all the earth. God reigns over the nation. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the peoples of the God of Abraham. You know, it's a very end time scene. It reminds me of Philippians 2, where one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. It's like the picture of Revelations where all the people will eventually gather and praise God as the people of God do now, as we, as the people of God, do now. And it says, for the shields of the earth belong to him. You know, right? Shields are something that protect. The shields of the earth, the things that protect God, the things that, or excuse me, that protect the earth, the things that protect this whole global terrestrial ball that we're on, belong to God, and he is highly exalted. And really, as we take a high overview of that, the thrust of why we praise God is because we fear him. I don't know about you, but I can kind of be like, wait, fear God? <laughs> really? Like, do we do, still do that today? When that kind of bygone, puritanical days it was the, we might be tempted to think, you know, no, we don't fear God, we love God today. Fear draws people away, you know, it's fear-based motivation that's counterproductive. But the fear that we're to have is a fear that has awe and respect and admiration that we're a little intimidated. You know, like if you... You're single, or if you can remember back in those days, like when you wanted to date someone and you admired them so much that you were kind of scared to talk to them. You're like, I don't know if I can get up the courage because they just seem so awesome. Or if there's a famous person that you just really admire, that if you ever got the opportunity to talk to them, you'd probably be kind of scared because you're like, they are so accomplished, they are so talented. That so much belongs to them. They have done so much that I wouldn't even know what to say to them. You know, it's kind of like you idolize them. Like an idol. Except for this isn't a little G God. This is a big G God. Um, And I was recently, it's interesting, I was just recently reading a book. And it said, when we rightly appraise ourselves, and when we rightly appraise God we should have fear, we should have awe, we should have admiration and respect and praise and healthy fear of God. And as we know God, we rightly appraise God, and as we rightly appraise ourselves, and yet we know that we are welcome to him, that we are wanted to draw close to him, what it does is it produces in us more intense, positive affections of praise and joy and delight. And we can more richly ascribe worthy glory to his name. And these right appraisals of God and these right appraisals of ourselves, and knowing that we're welcome to draw near to him, deepen us in worship, deepen us in praise, in both our private meditative prayer and in our public communal time together. A theologian said, fearing God is the most basic, fundamental, effective response of knowing who God is. And of course, we also know from Proverbs that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Do you feel a little confused in your life? Are you sometimes like, I just don't know what? Wisdom starts with the fear of God, rightly appraising him and rightly appraising yourself. You know, and also attached to this fear of God in the Psalms, we see that it says, He subdues the people under us. Then again, it magnifies, expands, intensifies to not just the people under us, but the nations under our feet. I just did a quick internet search because I'm not the best vocabulary person. I'm like, okay, what does subdue actually mean? And it means to gain control over something or to calm or quiet something. So like if there were an angry crowd of protesters and you subdued the crowd, you would get control or quiet and calm the crowd. In Hebrew, it literally is debar, and it means to arrange, except for it could be arranged like in a destructive sense. And we can think back of the history of Israel and that God indeed subdued the things that needed to be subdued for the people of Israel. I just thought, okay, this would be kind of a fun little thing. I just flipped from Genesis to Second Chronicles, and we're like, okay, what were the people that God subdued? You know, and maybe the first would be Shechem, the Hivite, when Dinah, one of Israel's daughters, were wronged, You know, and they definitely subdued that situation. And then as, you know, the people are coming out of the wilderness, and they're subduing the various people group to get back their homeland, you know, whether it's the Amalekites or the Midianites, all the different people groups, the Philistines, kind of sometimes went back and forth. But God subdued what needed to be subdued for his people Israel. He even subdued nations. When the final plague happened, the 10th plague happened, Egypt, the most powerful nation of the world, was subdued for God's people Israel. And even when God's people were in captivity, you know, with uh, the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar and the Persians, God raised up people to control and calm the situation. And when Israel found themselves in their homeland, in their promised land, in good times, they didn't give themselves credit. They gave God credit. God is the one who subdued, who rearranged the things that needed to be rearranged to give us what he wanted to give us. And I think the last thing that we should consider about how the fear of God helps us to praise is there's talk of a communal identity in here. The psalmist knows who Israel is, who he is, and who his people are as a communal corporate identity. It says in verse four, "The pride of Jacob with the chosen inheritance." even sociologists say that um, we need a communal identity that it builds resiliency in us individually and corporately to help us overcome, overcome hard times and barriers and trauma and abuse. And it gives us a strong stabilizing social force, right? If we're a community, because you have more aunties and uncles and cousins and more mature adults to help develop the youth and speak into the youth life on what is right and what is wrong and what is good. And what is kind. And I think in all of us, we have a sense that we want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And that's in us because that's how we were created, right? Genesis 1:26 says that we were created in the image of God. God, the Trinity, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed in community. And when we were created in God's image, we were created for community. And when we don't have that communal identity, something just doesn't make sense. Our praise and our fear of God is limited if we're just trying to navigate this life as just an individual. So let's be honest. Do we praise God? Like that text? When do we praise God? Why do we praise God? How do we praise God? Do we praise God individualistically? Do we praise God with a self-help, lucky rabbit foot attitude? I mean, let's be honest. We live in this consumer-based, consumer-driven world. Everything's always coming at us about what it can give to us. Is that where our praises overflow from? What can God give to us and then I'll praise you? Or is it based on the awe and fear of the Lord, of an understanding, of a right appraisal of who he is and who you are? And what about when we don't praise God? When we don't feel like praising God? Why don't we praise God? What are those barriers that we have to overcome? I would submit that there's probably two broad reasons why we don't fear God and praise him. We don't know who he really is. Or maybe we got some knowledge here, but we don't really believe or trust it as we push through the details of our life and know him in an intimate, experiential way. And or we don't know who we are to him. We don't let him define us. I think it's easy as we go through this broken, sin-ridden, curse of sin world to absorb the frustrations and then transfer them on to God and not know who he is. You know, maybe um, we feel alone. Maybe you've been abandoned, literally or emotionally. Or maybe you had too many responsibilities put on you too early, and you feel abandoned. You feel alone. You feel like God is not here. He's not trustworthy. I can't count on him. Or maybe the pain and suffering that you see seems like, if God were all-powerful, surely he would act to stop this pain and suffering. And since he hasn't, he must not be all-powerful. Or maybe we could kind of flip that. Maybe we think he's all-powerful and he's got all the big stuff. Maybe he's got that shields of the earth in control. But me? Do he really care about me and the details of my life? And those different, and we, we may think these, they may come up to our mind, and we may clearly think them. Or we may just believe them, and it drives how we operate and make choices in our life. But any of those ways, you know, whether we think I'm alone, he's not trustworthy, he's not all-powerful, um, he doesn't care about the details of my life, functionally, they all boil down to I better take matters into my own hands. And when we do that, we give other things power. And we fear other things to give us true life. If you want to know what maybe you're giving power to, what you're fearing, it's whatever you're banking on that if I get that I'm gonna have real life indeed. I'm going to, my life is gonna have meaning, or it's gonna have value. It's gonna be worth something. It's gonna have beauty, or it's gonna have respect. I'm gonna have peace. I'm gonna have enjoyment and pleasure. You know, it could be other people's love. We might think, if I have that person's love, if that person loves me, then my life is meaningful. Or maybe it's a job. If I have that job, that next higher-up job, or that job with better conditions or better pay, or I just have a job, then I have life. Then I'm taken care of. Or maybe it's money or compliments or accomplishments with social justice or giving. And we know when we do those things, we feel pretty good. But that's kind of the flag that, yeah, this is really about me and what I'm getting out of it. Or maybe it's this marriage. If I have this picture of marriage that I've painted in this picture only, then my life will make sense. Or this family, or these kids, then my life will be meaningful. If I don't have that, I'm just spinning. Or maybe we kind of flip to the other end. Like if I can just get vacations, and downtime, and me time, and self-care time, and Netflix, and... Like some my social media, not that any of these things are evil or wrong in themselves, but when we bank on those things, we give them power and we fear them, we admire them, we respect them, we're an on them. If that, if I have that, it's gonna take care of me. Or we might go to some pretty bad things. We might go to using or dealing or drinking or sexual immorality, or lying, or stealing, because that also makes us feel like I'm in control. I got this. But when we give those things power, when we function as if, if I have that, my life will have meaning, and if those things aren't the true God, what you're going to see in our lives is those fruits of the flesh that are listed in Galatians 5 you're going to see anger and strife and disunity. Is that We should be checking this off in our mind. Is this is what I see in my life? Anger and jealousy and disunity and lack of wisdom and lack of peace and lack of forgiveness and judgment and criticism because that's a flag. But I'm not giving God the power. I'm not getting his fruits in my life. And eventually, if that's what we keep fearing and giving power to, it's going to rob us, it's going to confuse us, we're going to be entangled, and it's eventually, if we stay there, going to destroy us. And the second reason we don't fear God, I would submit, is we don't rightly appraise ourselves. We don't let God, how God sees us, define us. Maybe we let good things define us. I could accomplish this. I could get this done. I could do this, 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 this. It might work out okay in the good times. Or maybe we let failures define us. We're always hearing that criticism, like that whisper, that static background noise. Fear of failure is always right there. The redemption book, either way, you know, whether we do accomplishments or failures, the redemption book puts it this way. What we end up doing is we end up building up this comprehensive manner of life. We've got so many layers of life built up on all these other definitions, on all these other things we give power to, and that's you know, sort of like our, our shields getting us through life. We don't even see God's reality, much less fear him or praise him. So, then we get to the good times. And if we have this other comprehensive manner of life, when we're in the good times, we're not praising God. We're not fearing God. We probably, if we peeled back the layers, think the good is from ourselves. You know, maybe we've absorbed that and transferred it on to God. Like, God's really not going to take care of these details. It's up to me. And so in the good, there's no fear of God. There's no praise of God. We don't praise God. We don't fear him because we're not rightly appraising ourselves. Any accomplishments, any talents, any abilities we have comes from God. I think it says somewhere in the Bible, like, what do you have, O man, except for what you've received from God? Daily, we are given overflowing gifts from the Heavenly Father's bountifulness. He is a giving Father who everything belongs to Him. And we have so many good things, the talents and abilities we have, lack of natural disasters in our land is what allows us to have jobs, productive jobs that gives us safe homes and beds and electricity and luxuries we have. And do we even... See that that's from God, that the shields of the earth belong to God, and if we have good right now, it's from the Heavenly Father's overflowing bountifulness. Do we fear God in that? Do we say it's only due to you? Do we kind of functionally act like, no, I did that. Now that depends on me. There's a problem. I'll, I'll get there. I'll take care of that. And then when things don't go so well, we're pretty stressed out and we're probably biting people's heads off because we got to take care of this. That depends on me or you and not on the fear of God. And then in the hard times, (laughs) if we're not fearing God and ascribing glory and power to His name, we just can't see anything but the circumstances and the barriers. And our thoughts, because that's all we're seeing is the hard, our focus is only on the hard, is probably things like self pity and bitterness blame-shifting, not a confidence hope that God can subdue what God will needs to be subdued. It's more just about ourselves and our circumstances. So what would it look like for Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ to produce in us the fear of God and to well up in us praises? out of that fear for God. You know, the Israelites, they had good reason to praise God. But we've got even more. We've got Jesus Christ, the promised King, has come. Death and sin and the curse of sin and the enemy have been conquered. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is sufficient. And one day he's going to come back, and death and Satan and the curse of sin is going to be destroyed. Right now, you know, we kind of live. It's an already and not yet kingdom. We kind of live in between that in the age of grace. But by faith in Jesus Christ's coming and life and death and resurrection, we can be conquerors with him by faith. Are we confident in that? Do we have that victorious outlook and hopeful outlook that he will arrange even destructively what needs to be rearranged? That the life, death, and Resurrection of Jesus Christ indeed was enough and sufficient, and nothing greater needs to be done to bring in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is within us and among us. And you and I can't add anything more to that work. When he said on the cross, it's finished. It's finished. He's done it. The enemy, sin, death has been conquered. And it's not on my burdens or my shoulders to make sure that God's plans and purposes get accomplished. He will secure that. Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection is enough, and we have his indwelling spirit. But on the other hand of the gospel, though he doesn't need us, though he'll accomplish his plans and purposes despite us, he delights to use in us. Like, we know we're all broken vessels here. And he somehow, for his glory, sweeps us into his plans and purposes and his great redemption story, and he uses us and he comes through us to bring him more glory and to share with others the glory of God, to even share into the heavenly realm the glory of God. That's his delight. Um, when we grasp, I think, those two realities, that God has accomplished it and that he delights to use us, when we have those two aspects, that reality, we understand that reality more and we can let it push up through the different areas of our life. So what would it look like to let God's reality... Jesus Christ, life, death, and resurrection, the kingdom of God within us and among us, that reality to push up through the various areas of our life. What would it happen if you not only consented to that reality, but you fear God and you praised Him because of that reality? What would happen if we Consented, not only consented to that reality, but we feared God and praised God because of that reality. I think um, I could share with you at least my testimony of what it looked like in my life. A lot of you know. that I've struggled with some pretty debilitating uh, panic attacks in my life. When I was four, when I was 11, and when I was 16, someone relatively close to me, my age, died tragically and unexpectedly. So the first one happened when I was four. It was a neighborhood friend of mine drowned in a swimming pool. You can think of telling a four-year-old. That was me. Well, then when I was nine, I started to process that. Um, And I started to ask the adults in my life, what happens to you when you die? And I didn't realize it then, but when I was looking back later, the adults in my life couldn't answer it, and I realize now it's because um, that's when my parents were going through a divorce, and it was pretty hard on my mom, or lots of layers with my dad. And so it left me unable to get help, and I think is maybe one of the biggest questions we ask. What happens to you when you die?" And functionally, emotionally, I was left feeling pretty abandoned. Not that I could have ever articulated that as a nine-year-old, but that's how I felt. And of course, we as humans are always interpreting, and so I imagined as a nine-year-old, what must happen to you when you die then is that you're alone in the dark forever. And there were some symptoms I had with that, and then I was 11 and a friend died. Then I was 16, and a friend died. Then I was 22, and I got these pretty debilitating panic attacks. And with the help of my husband and other people in my life, I got to the point where I realized I had to decide when some extremity on me was numb and my heart was palpitating and I was on the verge of hyperventilating I had to decide, in those moments, what had power. What did I fear most? Did I fear death? Most? because that had been my archenemy for a long time. Did I fear the physical symptoms I was feeling most? Did I give them power? Did they have the power to choose what was going to make me valuable and taken care of? Or did God have the power? And when in those moments I could say, God, you are most powerful. If death happened, you are not going to leave me. You are more powerful than death. Whatever symptoms, I mean, you know, logically, when I would get out of it, I'd be like, okay, I thought I was going to die like 100 times, and I haven't died yet. So it doesn't make any logical sense to give these symptoms power over me. But in the midst of it, there is no logic. There was just a choosing what gets to have power and respect over me. And when in those moments I could praise God and give him power and fear him, I got healthier. Not that I was coming to God to be healthier, just I came to God for who he is and entrusted myself to him, and I got healthier. Eric Johnson says in his book, Soul Care, that when we have these barriers to fearing God because of the breakdowns and curse in this world, psychological barriers, abuse, physical limitations, trauma. These are actually greater opportunities for God to flip it and be able to describe him more glory and more praise because he is highly to be feared. I've been teaching in Ramsey County Jail for about eight years. A couple weeks ago I was teaching a class one gal in the class had already completed the assignments that I give and gotten a certificate and then there were some new gals in the class and I was kind of going through the work pretty quickly so that the new gals could know what they needed to do to get their certificate and the gal who had already been there for a while said wait 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 can we stop right here I want to read my prayer on forgiveness I was like absolutely yes read that And so she read her prayer of forgiveness for her son's killer. And the beauty and the power and the thankfulness and the fear of God was palpable. And one of the other participants in the class said, I can feel that power. That's what God can do when we fear him. But what about in the good times? Is it is he just there for the hard times? What about the good times? What would happen if you let the fear of God, the right assessment of God, and the right assessment of you push up through the good times? What would it look like to not give yourself all the credit when things are going good? What would it look like for in the good to fear God and praise and thank him for what he's given you? All the good that we receive is even more fulfilled when we fear God and we praise him for it. Did you have good parents? Do you have good parents? Praise God for it. It's even more fulfilled and more beautiful because we're part more of his story of redemption and praising him when we see it from him. Do you have talents and accomplishments and abilities? It's even more fulfilled when we praise God for it. And when we praise God in the good and we rightly acknowledge Him, rightly acknowledge ourselves, it helps us to remember. Because let's be honest, we forget. We forget easily. When we can praise God in the good and remember, it helps us for when the hard comes. Right? Remember Psalm 22, probably about a month ago that George preached on? We get to see in Psalm 22, someone in the midst of fearing God in the middle of hardship. And the person goes back and forth between, no, I'm a worm, I'm not even a person, I'm scorned, to wait, God, you have known me since I was a nursing, helpless Infant, when we praise God and fear God in the good, it helps us to remember. Maybe since I have a little bit of time, I'll just end with one of my favorite quotes from the children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you remember that scene where the four kids are in the beaver's den and the oldest gal, Susan, realizes that Aslan, who represents God, is a lion, and she says to Mr. Beaver, um, "Oh, Aslan is a lion. Like, is he safe?" And Mr. Beaver is indignant. He's like, "Of course he's not safe, but he's good. That's how we need to draw near to God."